everyone, I'm John Hudson and welcome back to the Spitfire podcast in partnership with IWC Schaffhausen. As you listen to this podcast, the Silver Spitfire, an original Spitfire that's been restored, is on a historic flight doing something no Spitfire has ever done, flying around the world. In today's episode, we'll be talking with Jerry Jones and Tim Granshaw from Boltby Flight Academy. Jerry is chief engineer and Tim is chief flight instructor and we'll be finding out a little more about what makes these feats of engineering work and what it takes to keep them in the air after so long. So um, let's talk about Spitfires, but first of all, let's talk about you. So Tim, tell us who you are and where you're from. No problem at all. Uh, name's Tim Granshaw. I'm a flight instructor for Bolby Flight Academy and um, yeah, teach people to fly chipmunks, harvards through to Spitfires uh, down on the south coast. Brilliant, and that's um, some XRF types you've got in that mix. From we, the yeah. yeah, I'm one of the uh, the yeah. As far as the aircraft goes, it's all yeah, all RAF stuff, which is, is pretty it? pretty exciting stuff. So, were you ever in the air force before? Not at all. I'm an absolute yes, a fraudster as far as that goes. No, yeah, no, pure, pure silly, clean blood. <laughs> exactly <Yeah>. that. <laughs> Excellent. And Jerry, tell us about you, mate. Where do you come from, and how did you get into this caper? So, my my full name's Gadash Jones. I'm, right, I'm from Wales. Um, everybody calls me Jerry because nobody can say the double L's at the end of my uh, name. Apologies, I won't be able to say uh, that. No, um, and I'm the chief engineer at Botby Flight Academy, and I'm responsible for looking after all the other airplanes. And I'm also chief engineer on the uh, Silver Spitfire. Awesome. Flight. So that's quite a lot of different types you have to look after, then, Jerry. Yeah, it is. There's, I think we've got five different types, well, four different types in the academy. But you know, through through my career, I must have worked on tens of types, of different types of airplanes. Yeah. They all use the same principle to get themselves in the air and back down the ground again. <laughs> but you put it you put it very simply, but I there must be a phenomenal amount of tech that you have to poke into your head to know all those different airframes. Yeah, it comes from experience of the types that you work on really. Uh, the, the, the little stuff that we call it, use the little pulp jumpers, they all they all they're all very similar. Oh, they? And then the, the other types I worked on more advanced sort of biz jets, um oh, yeah. turboprop stuff where you're into turbine engines and wow turbo prop engines um, they, they need a bit more of the grey matter to uh, understand how they work of course the more expensive they are the bigger they are yeah. the more computers they've got the more complexities there is yeah. but it's all about reading the books and you know hands on for me is what that's how I learn I don't like reading I don't like reading the books really unless I have to but so um, you properly spend your time when you're like in the hangar looking up at engines that kind of thing yeah 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 that's how you learn yeah, and it must be very, well, I can only imagine it's phenomenally time-consuming with that many different types and a maintenance schedule, and they're, they're not very new aeroplanes either, are they? So there'll be glitches and things wearing out, I guess. Yeah, the, well, yeah certainly the stuff like now, like the Spitfire, is, um, it's a labour-intensive machine. Yeah. Um, it's a lovely aeroplane. Um, it, it was built at a time of, of need, and it was very Britishly over-engineered. <laughs> um, and they fitted a lot of stuff into a small space. Yeah. Um, and it takes a lot to just to keep on top of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they do take a lot of time and a lot of money. No, but I'm looking forward to hearing much more about that. And then when we're talking about the, the stuff that you do, Tim, the Spitfire, which is what we're going to be talking about, and to me, an iconic aircraft. I remember having a small little matchbox toy Spitfire when I was a toddler almost, and I've known the shape for years. What was it at first? Do you remember even when you first knew what a Spitfire was, Tim, and how you got into that kind of um, iconic design? Yeah, um, my grandfather used to be really into um, aircraft and aircraft modelling, of all things, and it's actually oh, yeah, a Spitfire yeah. model that I, um, I distinctly remember probably from about age four. Really? Growing up, and uh, yeah, he used to have a, just a cabinet full of all these different things. For some reason, that shape, I just was immediately drawn to it. And then, um, uh, yeah, I remember my first air show, which must have been when I was about eight. And, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, getting to see one fly, and it was just... Um, all the jets, the fast jets, don't get me wrong, absolutely fantastic watching those go past. But there was something just so, the presence of it and the elegance was just, um, yeah, it just I was captivated by it at that stage. And it was, um, yeah, I kind of uh, set my sights, as it were, to that's what I wanted to do and never, ever thought I'd ever get anywhere close, basically. So, yeah. Oh, well, hats off to you, mate. You're, oh, you're both very lucky to work with them. And going back to that air show moment, to be able to now do that kind of thing yourself, that must be a complete full circle ambition completed. Almost, yeah. I'm still on the, um, as far as the display flying going, I'm yep. still on the uh, learning curve of that. So right. um, hopefully towards the end of this year, I'll, um, I'll start kind of breaking into the early stages of that. But yeah, flying that aircraft is just uh, beyond a dream come true. It's just 
I have to pinch myself every time I'm around it and um, I would say in it as well but Jared get very annoyed if I'm uh, not thinking about the chopping handle and flying <laughs> <laughs> quite right too you look after my toys exactly yeah, yeah. You, you, what you can't yeah. uh, see at the moment is Jerry giving daggers across yeah. the table <laughs> <laughs> awesome bit of engineering skill there Jerry hats off yeah. that's how you teach him not to break the aeroplane well yeah exactly yeah. treat with respect it's an yeah. icon to him come on yeah it is yeah <laughs> Then the, um, the fact that you're so tuned into it and you're a younger guy, and not, no offence, Jerry, but we're both a little bit older than Tim. Only a bit. Say. A little bit. Yeah. Um, the fact that you've managed to achieve that ambition and fly the aeroplane, has it changed what the aircraft's meant to you since you've been able to use it as your, almost your office? Uh, it has. I mean, I was blown away by, I mean, I like the historical elements. I'm, I'm very much, um, I've kind of read up about it and hmm. seen the movies, read the books, those kind of things about how much of an impact it, it had. Um, but... Actually, when you start getting towards it, I got a whole different appreciation, which was the sheer performance. So from a, a pilot's perspective, and I consider myself very low in the pecking order as far as pilots go, um, but you're handed something that is, uh, it's got 1,300 horsepower, it's a 27-litre engine with a two-stage, two-speed supercharger. It was, it's a nine, uh, the design, initial design is just over 80 years old, I think I'm correct in saying. Yeah, 1936, I think the first yeah. one flew. And right it's, on. It will, it's got a VNE, so maximum speed of 400 miles an hour. Routinely, we're, we're up around kind of 250 to 300 miles an hour. Yeah. Um, and it basically just goes where you want it to go. You barely have to think about it. And the vertical performance is absolutely insane. So from a pilot's point of yeah. view, you're kind of handed this piece of history, which you're, of course, sat there and go, you know, I must treat the same. And then you get into it and it's just the most um, insane feeling of freedom when you're when you're there of just, yeah, flying this thing around that can do things, which no other aeroplane I've flown before has ever kind of got close to that level. And it's, it's all done in such an elegant, beautiful way. It's, um, yeah. yeah. Fantastic. So that's kind of the appreciation it's given me anyway. That's so, awesome. Yeah. And that all boils down to the hard work that you put in the hangar then, I guess. The fact that it, it doesn't ever enter someone's mind when they're flying it, that they're kind of gingerly handling an antique that might fail them at any moment. They've got faith in it still. Yeah, it, it's a lot of pressure. It's never something that I sit comfortably with and say, you know, oh, I'm always relaxed about it. After we, you, you always sit there and I'll always watch it, especially after we've done something. Yeah. We'll always, you always watch it go and you always you just sit there and you listen and you're always just on on your tiptoes just to make sure really yeah. they're like I said they're, they're complicated machines mm, and yeah. we do our best I've been taught by some really good people over the years to to know what to look for and to to try and prevent stuff before it happens really yeah and um, you said something then a moment ago Jerry where you said you, you're listening for things as well so is that just the noise from the engine or does a Spitfire talk to you in other ways like from the aerofoil oh they, they, they talk to you yeah, yeah yeah they do talk to you they'll start to do something that they don't usually do or they'll just start having some funny little quirk that wasn't there before nine times out of ten it'll be trying to tell you something right and I think just this week or last week we had a, a little bit of problem with one of my other, other Spitfires and it was exactly that it's been talking been talking for a while and we were right in what we thought and yeah. we fixed it and it's gone away again so you but if you don't listen to them then it'll it'll come back and bite you so yeah and that's that practical thing you were talking about isn't it where yeah. you, you're fault finding through almost like that sixth sense from familiarity i guess it's through experience of yeah. working on the airplane and w when you spend so much time with these airplanes like we do you do get to know them yeah. inside out yeah. me more than most people inside <laughs> them upside down and everything else um and you they talk to you and you you look at something you'll hear something you'll it, it just if it's not right then it's not right it's not a case of you thinking is it just me it's you know you've got to listen to what it's telling you so you're using it sounds like both of you are using really old skills on a really old aircraft because these days something as high performance as that turns up at a formula one garage and it gets plugged into a computer and you're both of you are the computer like on the one side in the air and the other side as you listen to it is it is it when it flies past jerry or is it as it taxis in you won't hear it so much when it flies past you, these guys are really good people like tim and, and yeah. our other pilots you know that they, they know these airplanes well too and they know that we as engineers need the feedback yeah because if they don't tell us that well oh, this bit doesn't feel quite right today or yeah. that's making a bit of a funny vibration there, then we don't know about it until it actually breaks right and that that's the whole point of what we try and do is to try and preempt stuff so that we can keep them keep them working and keep yeah. them safe and reliable. And how does that all work, Tim, when you're in the air? Do you have to go through the motions of the flight sortie and keep mental notes of things that you've found or detected? Or Yeah, it's, um, we, I, kind of, I actually just carry a, a kneeboard and if yep. anything's a little out of, or just not out of tolerance, but something that just has come up that's a little bit unusual, just make a note and think about things. I mean, 
things tend to happen quite quickly in that aircraft, so you're always thinking, trying to think a right. few miles ahead of what's going on. Um, so you don't always um, kind of pick up on it. But yeah, a couple of things you can, if there's a, a slight vibration or something like that, you can kind of easily pick it up and then just make a mental note because in yeah. a couple of seconds time, you'll have gone on to the next thing. But um, but no, it's very it's, it's brilliant having someone and Jerry and his team who are so committed. I mean, it yeah. gives you absolute faith in that and also gives us the ability to uh, keep the band going because if you want to ruin Jerry's weekend, just just give him a couple of missed calls after being <laughs> flying and then just leave it. It's just fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> That would be a flight safety problem, surely. <laughs> you wouldn't want to do that. So when you come back in, let me. I'm trying to picture the scene now. So you, you've uh, done your your Biggles moment in the lovely Spitfire. You've you've taxied back in. You've got a kneeboard with a few notes. How does the conversation evolve between you two guys when you step out of the aeroplane? Then dare you touch his machine once you're out of the cockpit? <laughs> I usually just pick up a hammer and just call it a spanner or something like that. <laughs> but, um, no, we. Um, Jerry's pretty much, or whoever's the engineer kind of on, on site at the time, they're usually the first person will then go and see pretty much immediately. So I'd say from getting out the uh, the aircraft, I'll yep. be next to Jerry within 30 seconds. Yeah. He'll always ask how it's going, and then it's a good time for us to have a, a little bit of feedback and just make sure that what, what he's seeing is in line mm. with us. Um, yeah, we we do that. Things. We do it after every flight, and we really, it'll be yeah. the engineers probably, the, especially with our two-seat Spitfire, the the operations guys will go to, to the passenger in the back, the engineer or whoever's on duty will go to the front to speak mm-hmm. to the pilot. Everything right? Yeah, fine, or not. or mm-hmm. And then we'll just do our sort of walk rounds and checks and, and make sure everything's okay. And what's the tempo of flying like for you guys if you've got the two-seaters and, and people looking to have that Spitfire experience? Is it quite a quick turnaround or do you always take a, a bit of a moment because they're so old? Um, we, we do seven flights a day. Wow. So it, it's a fairly high, mm. um, high work rate. Um, there's... 15 or 20 minutes between each flight normally which is enough time for you know this, you've got to get passengers out and yep. they, they need to have their um they need to have their uh spitfire moment in front of the camera yeah, and all the sure. rest of it and then you have to get them off the airfield or off the air side back to and then go and get the next passenger so while that's going on you know it gives us time to do a nice walk around refuel if required clean the windows tighten some screws up right and, and like you say, you know each aircraft and its character, so you know the kind of things each one would need, perhaps. Oh, yeah, for our aeroplane, I, I know which screws to go for every time. I don't really? need to. <laughs> you, you, you don't need to go and look for anything. You know what you're looking for, and if 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 there's something wrong, it's pretty obvious normally. Right. How do you get a Spitfire into the air seven times a day when it's that old? You know what I mean? It's it, it's a well-oiled machine now. Um, we well we our, the Flight Academy was the first com- company in the UK or I think anywhere in the world to actually gain an approval a to train Spitfire pilots mm. and I think we're only the approved training Sp- Spitfire training school in the world but also we were the first company to get Civil Aviation Authority approval because we worked with them yeah. to, to allow people to fly in the back of a Spitfire before before we did that, you had to hold a pilot's license to fly in the back of a Spitfire. Oh, I didn't know that. You couldn't be just a member of the public. Because the control column was right next to you? It's to do with it being a non-certified aircraft, okay. um, et cetera, et cetera. It's just to do with the regulations and how, right. how, they're, how they're worded. So we, 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 we wrote a set of regulations, basically, which allowed us to for people to basically do what we call a safety standards acknowledgement and consent and, yep. and sign to say that they acknowledge that you know the aircraft is to this standard, but it's not certified internationally. Yeah. But if you want to have a go in it, then sign along the dotted line. So. Yeah, well, it's the trip of a lifetime for a lot of people, so I'm sure yeah. everyone's willing to sign that. We haven't had anybody that's refused yet, no, have we? No. So. <laughs> <laughs> and then when you were learning to fly the Spitfire, Tim, how much time did you have to spend in Jerry's care in the hangar learning how all the different components integrated? Was there a lengthy sort of tech ground school, as I would know? It? I was lucky enough to have spent about kind of probably two or three years in and out um, with yeah. that. So there are kind of technical briefs that you have to learn as a pilot yeah. and get signed off on, but um, I take quite an interest in it yeah, anyway. Okay. And it's um, every time they got the cowlins off and just get to see that beautiful Merlin engine and yeah, like Jerry saying, how much they've packed into the smallest space. Um, I think I think the, the, what, the greatest example I've got of that is we, uh, um, a few years ago, we had a seal go on the Bendix drive of the starter motor, uh, which is actually a relatively easy thing to change up until the point where in order to change it, you've got to separate the engine from the supercharger, which means removing the engine yeah, from the airframe. I, I don't <laughs> know much about your airplane, but the supercharger is like at the pilot end, isn't it? Not very, at the propeller end. Very much so. Right. So uh, a part that probably cost, what, £100 ended up yeah. in something like £10,000 worth of uh, yeah, manual labour to get this thing out. And oh, then wow. this so it's it's um, but it's it's a incredible design and um, I still even these days I'll still go around and learn learn mm. something new. So Jerry will very kind of just have to, um, one of our single seat airplanes just going through its annual and 
um, having all the panels off and get to see mm. components that you've never you've read about, you've never seen, and actually get to see how how it operates. It's um, yeah, it's fantastic. So I was very 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 lucky, and Jerry's been very very kind, kind of taking me into a controlled environment um, <laughs> and allowing me to uh, to look and occasionally just uh, yeah. That's that's, that's an amazing education to be able to go into the hangar and see one being like dissected. Yeah, it's um, and it's yeah, still now. I mean. I, I take my iPhone with me because yeah. I've just got loads of pictures of various different parts, which uh, yeah. probably mean nothing to anyone. But I'm just like, look at this engineer; it's so cool. <laughs> um, but uh, no one else seems to. Well, in our, at least in our yeah, environment, yeah. I do. Yeah. Um, with the girlfriend, it's like, no, yeah, so. But, <laughs> Is that another Spitfire picture, dude? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you showing me this? I'm just sat next to you on the train. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> And what about getting the actual bits, Jerry? It must be quite difficult to find parts these days. How do you go about that, or do you have to make them even? A bit of both, really. Yeah. There's we hold quite a bit of stock ourselves. You know, there's not a lot out there left to be found now, no. um, and cert certain parts are getting very difficult to find. A lot of parts we are allowed to make um, okay. because we we all hold um, full drawing sets for these airplanes, so right. we're allowed to produce stuff, providing yeah. it's obviously within the within the spec of the drawing. The only thing we do these days, obviously the materials that we build, make it from are probably of a better standard. Right, yeah, sure. So they've got higher grade alloys and that kind of thing. Yeah. And then in terms of manufacturing the bits, how do you go about that? Have you got a machine shop or something? So there's a couple of specialist companies out there that, that, that do do, right. do produce the bits bits for us. So. Okay. Um, but it's obviously it's very costly. Um, oh yeah, no doubt. And there's still some, some of the bigger cast items like undercarriage legs, for example, that incredibly difficult to get hold of and mm. because recreating the tooling to recast them is probably a six-figure sum in the first place <laughs> before you start making them yeah it, it just takes it will take you know until until we've completely exhausted what we've got yeah. and it, it'll take then somebody to invest yes and then you know as soon, as soon as somebody invests and they start producing them then eventually you know you'll start selling them again but yeah, because it was the aeroplane was on that boundary, wasn't it, of like handcrafted wooden canvas and new shiny monocoque. So I'd imagine that there's a little bit of um, the craftsman left about how you attend to some of the, the things you have to work on, and then a lot of it's you know, proper 20th, 21st century mass-produced engineering, but you just can't get the dies. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the tin bashing bit of it, as we call it, you know, yeah. the, the, all the aluminium framework and the skins and all the all formers and stringers and stuff, yeah. they're all still made by hand. Really, um, there's a couple of really, you know, there's there's two or three really specialist companies and and a few individuals um, in this country that can do phenomenal things with pieces of aluminium that I could only dream of, <laughs> um, you know, over wheels and uh, and formers and yeah. it's just amazing what they what they can do with uh, with a bit of metal. So there are still people around the UK who are hand building bits for Spitfire. Absolutely, that's phenomenal. Do you Absolutely. ever get to go and watch them at work? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah, Excellent. I stand there sometimes. Oh, I wish I could do that because <laughs> it's just a different skill set, yeah. you know, to what to what I've got. That that, that is what their their skill set is. They, they you can give them a flat piece of metal and they'll come back with something that's beautiful within about an hour. And I'm like, how did you do that? It's magic. <laughs> yeah. It is magic. Yeah. It is magic. It's a very 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 talent. Yeah. Do you ever get any hands on with the mechanics side of it, mate? Do you ever get entrusted with the kit? <laughs> not when Jerry not knows a chance. Yeah, not when He's Jerry not allowed anywhere it. near my toolbox. <laughs> <laughs> We've done a little bit of kind of talking around it, and I know you mentioned some some performance figures earlier, but let's have a quick look at the kind of the deeper detail, if you like. So, like you already know how to treat me like I'm five, and can you <laughs> can you explain for like the layman that is me how that Merlin engine generates the power that it generates? Because we've, we've mentioned a, a turbocharger at the, the, the back end of it, but what's going on inside? Did you say 27 liters? So it's 27 liters. It's a big cast block. Yeah. It's about 800 kilos that engine weighs when, really? it's, when it's fully dressed so with everything on there. Ten people just under, stood on the nose of the aeroplane. Just under a ton, yeah. slung eight foot out in front of the pilot somewhere. Right. Um, 27 litres, 48 valves. Wow. Uh, you know, twin overhead cams, all the rest of it, all the bells and whistles, if you like. And then a direct-driven supercharger on the back. Um, on our aircraft, it's a, what we call a two-stage, two-speed supercharger. So it's got a... a, a clutch pack and a gear change in there that oh, happens okay. which is sensed by an, a barometric switch really um, which was really advanced yeah. at the time yeah. and when they get to around about 10 or 12,000 feet it just changes gear and, okay. it, and it just spins the supercharger even faster as the, obviously as the air gets thinner as you go up and it just gives you well back in the 40s it would give you sort of up to 1800 horsepower all the way up to 
20, 25,000 feet. Wow. And just to, for for me to put that into context, how much more oomph is that than the kind of little aeroplanes you see if you, um, you know, down at your general aviation flying club? So a little a little chipmunk or a PA-28 is probably sporting somewhere around 160 horsepower. So wow. um, I think of when I move the throttle in that, I think of it in terms of chipmunks because effectively you've got <laughs> uh, 10 chipmunks. So that's a chipmunk. And then it's just, yeah, yeah so it is... Um, yeah, it's got 10 times power or something like that, and probably, what, twice the weight of that? So, I mean, you're talking a, yeah. a huge um, a power-to-weight ratio is absolutely vast. And, of course, these days, um, it's, it's nowhere near as heavy as it might have been when it, um, mm. how it was originally kind of designed to be. So the performance is it's substantial. Substantial, yeah, indeed. And, and then it, you mentioned this, the spares issues earlier. How long do those valves last for? Is it a kind of a constant cycle of changes, or do you just husband them? The... We run on a 500 hour, 500 flying hour overhaul cycle on these right. engines, and you know, to date, touch wood, there's a bit there. Um, we we reliably run them up, you know, to 500 hours, mm-hmm. um, and have very very few issues. And what happens at the 500 hour point? Just to... so they'll go away to an engine overhauler. Right. Um, they'll get stripped, inspected, worn out parts replaced. Yeah. Put and back is it together yourself again. that removes them, Jerry? Or you, you and your yeah, team? we'll remove them and then yeah. we'll send them away to the overhaulers and they'll suspend probably eight or nine months. Really? At the oh, overhaulers. Wow. So it's actually like bench stripped right back to, to bare components? Oh, yeah, the, yeah, it's barely recognisable. As a, really? It's just a pile of gears and yeah. bits. Um, I went up to the overhaulers a few months ago to, to do some bits up there with him and there's just, well, I can see that's the supercharger impeller and then there's about seven gears there and then there's that bit there, there's a big block there that should have pistons in it but there's nothing in it is wow. i can't remember there's there is a figure for the amount of parts in a merlin but i can't remember what that is now it's tens of thousands isn't it is it really yeah just all in harmony yeah. and when you've strapped it onto the airplane it's all doing bits of moving metal it's phenomenal when you think about the, the era that it was built in i've been doing a, a little bit of research into the, the schneider racing planes yeah yeah and the engine that developed into the griffin eventually but then the merlin that sprang off from it and the amount of leaps forward in technology that this airplane represents the only the only real analogy i could come up with for that works in my tiny mind is that the spitfire is kind of the tech and the leap in performance that you got from a smartphone from an old nokia you think about the airplanes of the day that could like analog themselves around and wooden and string and canvas and this monocoque speed racer with an amazing engine that weighs what 80 kilos 800 kilos yeah. yeah it was just i mean that that time period for aviation especially was quite special wasn't it the evolution yeah. from the sort of 20s through to the probably to the to the jet age of the sort of early 50s was mm-hmm. just it was phenomenal the curve yeah. that they went through and the learning curve that they were going through every week somebody was coming out with something that was 10 times better than what they had last week yeah and the spitfire was the same from when it first flew in 36 to where even where you get to 44 where we had the, the nine which is less than 10 years mm. the evolution was astounding yeah and that, that's the bit that i've been looking into that i find most interesting interesting i did a little bit of design before i joined the air force and you go from a kind of a, a 1920s airplane to what to us is a familiar shape everyone can identify well that's everyone most people would recognize the elliptical wing shape of rj mitchell spitfire but back then it was like seeing a ufo and then the amount that um, Smith managed to build into it after that to morph it and um, evolve it into the Mark 9 and then the, the later 20 Marks that came up afterwards. It's probably one of the greatest evolutionary um, aircraft when you look at it that bridged from um, biplanes to jet age and kind of filled every point in between, isn't it? And when you look at the shape that it changed from and to from the Mark 1 to the later Seafires, how yeah, much- yeah. Yeah. How much do you think the um, the shape represents the the kind of the end of the the piston era then the, when it started to change over to jets? Did they stretch it as far as they could? Do you think? I think from out of the Spitfire they did certainly. Mm. You know they kept they kept up in the horsepower. They kept changing the engines. They you know we ended up the Mark Twenty Four was the last one, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. Um, and I think they obviously stuck the big Griffin engine in there. They put contra rotating props yeah. on them as well. And I don't know what sort of performance they were getting out of them at the end. You? They, I think they still, um, I think I'm right in thinking the speed record was held by a Spitfire. Um, uh, altitude. Into the, yeah, yeah, into the jet age, which is kind of quite quite right. substantial, really. So it's yeah. uh, all that uh, yeah, amazing technology there. They did get cool. one just about up to the critical Mach number, didn't they? About yeah. 0.98, I really? think, at, um, above Farnborough. Wow. And then the engine fell out. 
No way. Well, the prop parted <laughs> company first, didn't it? Because the reduction gearbox broke off. Right, because right. of the strain. Because of the strain. Mm-hmm. And then in the ensuing dive, it, it just disappeared, then obviously nose down, and then the pilot woke up. Oh, wow. At about 20,000 feet, I think. And uh, half his engine was missing, and uh, he managed to make it do an emergency landing. It's in one of the books. I can't remember which test pilot that one is. No, yeah. I can't remember either. Incredible, yeah. incredible yeah. escape, though. Oh, it's, yeah, and the then, stuff they used to do. And but this thing was bent. You know, it bent the wings. It really? almost, it was almost, it was almost gone like a swept wing airplane. Wow! So it pushed itself as fast as a jet. Yeah. Inadvertently, in that Inadvertently. case. Inadvertently. Yeah. And it still came back and sort of landed. Yeah. And how do you see your role um, compared to the engineers back then? Because a lot of these airplanes were coming back bent and with holes in them. How much do you uh, look up to those guys who were doing your role years ago? I think their mentality was completely different to what we've got to do now. We're, we're in kind of preservation mode yeah. you know we're we're custodians to these things really mm-hmm. and trying to keep them flying whereas they would just patch them up and send them on their way they did what they needed to do to to get get them out of the door because as it as it came onto onto the squadrons you know it was a it was a massive boost for them all and they all wanted them but they couldn't all have them yeah and there was quite a, a shortage of them at one point and you know i think they, they they did what they needed to do to keep them flying yeah and uh, from what i've been able to to learn they were almost like a formula one pit crew when an airplane mm. would come in swarming around it changing things over retopping up yeah i think they'd, they'd probably scowl at us a bit these days for taking so long to do stuff but <laughs> i don't yeah. know i think they probably respect you for looking yeah. after the icon maybe they maybe that we, we have the time now that they always wish they did have. Yeah. i don't know but yeah Hi, I'm Justin Hast, writer and photographer. If you're enjoying the Spitfire podcast, why not take a look at my video series, Time Flies, where IWC museum curator Dr. David Cipher and I compare and contrast pilot's watches, old and new, carefully detailing what makes each model unique. You can find the series on IWC Watch's YouTube channel or search hashtag IWC Heritage. Win the day, folks. So if you were to... Well, for you two, if you're looking at the, the cockpit of a Spitfire versus one of these modern, um, all bells and whistles aeroplanes, what are the things that you wish you could have in a Spitfire that you haven't got? What kind of creature comforts even? Uh, a steerable nose wheel would be great. Um, <laughs> um, to be fair, it's actually, um, the. I think a lot of us cheat a little bit these days. So yeah. um, when we're flying, we, have, um, we, we generally do have iPads. Um, yep. which help us to keep a little course. Dead reckoning one of these from um, how the guys uh, did it back in the 40s, I've no no idea. So he, these days, of course, the airspace is a lot more um, congested than it ever used to be. Yep. Um, but, I mean, we're doing three to four miles a minute, um, so things are happening very, very quickly. So yeah. having the mod cons that kind of uh, your, your average business jet or something like that would have to help keep on track of that is... So like moving maps for navigation, yeah, that, that kind that, of digital interface. That, yeah, that would be... Um, very, very good. Um, do you ever fly with your iPad in the Spitfire or is that verboten? No, I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. very much so. In fact, I had uh, one moment where uh, um, if you heat an iPad up enough, um, yeah. it comes up with a massive thermometer that just flashes. Oh, really? I found myself on a nice summer's day <laughs> um, in between yeah, Luton, Stansted and Heathrow um, <laughs> with a 10-mile gap doing oh, no. one mile every 15 seconds. <laughs> and then this thing started flashing. I was like, oh, oh not is, now. Yeah, this isn't a good time. <laughs> um, but um, So that, that would be um, yeah, hugely useful. Um, also, the fuel system yep. um, on the, uh, especially the R2 seat Spitfire TR9 is, um, it's probably, I'd say, one of the worst design concepts that you could have as far as a fuel system goes. So okay, to put it that? in perspective, we've got uh, five fuel tanks. We've got um, central one in front of in front of you, and then we've got two outs and inners and outers on the wing. Right. Uh, the way the fuel system works is it um, the main tank drains 10 um, imperial gallons. Right. And then it, the wings, which are pressurized, then feed into the main tank, which keeps going. Okay. Sounds great. Up yep. until the point where your fuel gauge yep. goes from, uh, I think it's... Twin, uh, 39 30, to 29. 39 yeah. to 29, and then stops. Oh, really? And you're expecting to stop. And when it starts moving again, you have got to land uh, within 15 minutes. Oh, as wow. in be on the ground within yeah. 15 minutes. Yeah. Um, We've got enough fuel to last an hour and a half, so that's a long time to be looking at a fuel gauge not mm. moving. Mm. Um, the other thing is the pressurization of the system is the exhaust valve of the suction or the vacuum pump, yep. um, which means if you get a vacuum pump failure, not only will you use your, lose your uh, gyro-fed instruments, so yes. you'll also lose uh, your fuel. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, so a couple of systems like that, so I wouldn't mind uh, um, a bit of a better um, yeah, fuel gauge mm. system would be great. 
Um, and besides that, I mean, it's they're all tail aircraft, so inherently they're quite mm. um, uh, twitchy. I think is um, on the ground they're quite um, the whole concept of getting them airborne and getting them back is we've got fourteen foot of nose ahead of us. Mm. It's at a nice angle of about I think seven percent or something similar. Yeah, not yeah. Yeah, so um, effectively, uh, take off and landing, we don't get to see a runway um, at all. Yeah. Um, which gets yeah fun. So having a bit bit better visibility, but besides those little things, it's just but that's part of the the fun and the the joy of being able to convert to something like this. It's learning to master a trade, and you kind of um, it gives you so much more respect for the people who were flying these mm. back in the heyday because they just this was just what they had to do. They overcame all of those, and they they were the real. The real masters of it, really. So, when you're at a busy airfield these days, and you've got that restricted forward vis, how do you? I mean, back in the day, it was a big grass strip, I guess, mm. and then the guys were sort of pointing to wind and take off as quickly as they could. How do you taxi on like a curved taxiway? Um, it gets interesting. We do um, so primarily. We'd like to do S turns. I right. concept is you um, turn the aircraft right, you look left, yep. check that you're not going, and then do that. On the bigger airfields where they have uh, yeah, prescribed taxiways and they're small taxiways, yeah. that can be quite difficult yeah, to do. So you just make sure when you're taxiing out, you have a really good look, and then yeah. you'll probably have about three or four moments along the way where you go, Has oh, anything yeah, changed yes. that I can't see? <laughs> yeah. Yes. I, I get to do it sometimes, and it, I don't mind doing it, but it it, it concentrates the mind a little bit. And I, I'll find myself hanging out each side, and then you'll get a face full of air, face full of exhaust fumes. You go the other side, face full of exhaust fumes. Right. And then you think, oh, I'm checked the other side for a while. Then you go the other side. Oh, I'm checked the other side. I go the other side. And you're just constantly thinking, oh, am I going to hit anything? Yeah, it's like the weirdest place to have a blind spot right in front of you. <laughs> yeah, it? it is. Yeah. And you've got, um, on the control stick, you, the brakes are, it's, it's a bicycle brake handle. Right. Um, and it, it's a pneumatic system, so it's a bit like air brakes on a, on a uh, truck. Right, okay. So when you squeeze that lever, yeah. it puts the air pressure to the brakes. Yep. And then the way you steer the airplane is you move the rudder pedals. There's a clever little valve on the floor that right. diverts the air one side or the other. Yeah. So you've got to make sure, if you want to stop quickly, you've got to make sure the pedals are in the middle. Oh, wow. Because if you don't, yeah. you'll just stop one wheel and you'll spin off the way that you weren't intending to go. Wow. Is that something you learn through bitter experience? Yeah, I've done it a few times because I, I, I don't obviously <laughs> do it very often. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Um, And I think, oh, I need to stop now. And I've forgotten that my feet were not quite in the, yeah. and the airplane starts going warm. And you think, oh. Crikey. Uh, for, so I was sort of saying that, you know, the, the, the difference between the little chipmunks and stuff yep. and for the for the pilots, that they're jumping into something like that, mm. which... I know the rudder becomes effective very quickly on that airplane when you get a little bit of airspeed and prop prop flow over it. But right. just on controlling it on the ground in that latter stage of landing, where all you've got is this bike brake lever, which being air brakes, they're very kind of you've got to be very very careful with them. They're on or they're off. Right. You've got to be quite progressive with what you're doing. You know, you, there's a lot there's a lot to do, and you can see these pedals dancing and this brake lever twitching and. Yeah. It's it's not an easy thing to sort of keep control of. No, I bet it's not. And, and with you being an engineer and understanding how the whole system works, do you find yourself in those moments thinking about the system rather than kind of having an instinctive response to what's happening, the effects that you're putting in? Do you ever find yourself going, I know this is an air brake, I'm going to need to press this quite gently, or do you just go, I'll touch it a bit, I know now? No, I'm quite. I'm I'm, I'm used to it now. But when I first used to do it, it was very much kind of eek. Oh. <laughs> just a just a little just to see what it does and. And Tim will probably tell you the same. You know, it, it's the that latter stage of where you, the, the airplane just comes down into the sort of three-point attitude where right. you, you lose the airflow over the back of the airplane and you've got to start trying to keep the airplane straight yeah. by just snatching a little bit of brake and moving your feet and, wow. and trying, I guess you pick a point on the horizon, don't you, is what you normally do, just to so aim for. Peripheral vision as well? as Yeah, a lot, yeah. a lot of that kind of stuff. So how much respect have you got as a, as a pilot to the guys who were learning when these airplanes were brand new and they were sort of like getting thrown into them <laughs> without a two-seater training variant and strap yourself in, so off you go. Phenomenal. Um, mm. So I had, in, comp- um, in comparison to the number of hours they had, quite a large amount of hours. These days terms, I've got probably a very, very small amount of hours, but I, um, by the time I was heading towards Spitfires, I had about 550 hours. They would mm. have had, if they were lucky, 200 and about 200, 250, and right. they would have just flown harbours. Um, these days, kind of in order to get to the Spitfire, you're kind of following a similar path. So um, the majority of my hours were on Chipmunks, then yep. it's the Harvard. Um, the Harvard is a great aeroplane. It does certainly teach you the way, but it's 600 horsepower. It's um, it's a heavier or it's on, on par it's weight-wise. on par weight-wise. Yeah. Right. Um, and it's got a tiny prop, so you, you don't have any kind of real... Um, 
sense of what that prop and extra power is, is going to do. So for the guys jumping mm. from that straight in was just phenomenal. I mean, my I can still pitch my first uh, takeoff from the um, from the front seat up at Duxford, and I was lined up. You're you're kind of fueled on adrenaline at that stage. Yeah, you're you, you're sat there. You're it's kind of half excitement, half well, a lot, a lot of nerves. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I remember I just started to apply the, the throttle and you are just thrown back into your seat oh, yeah. on certain terms and it was um that was quite an odd experience and then you got a lot of uh, the gyroscopic effect and p factor so the airplane very very quickly doesn't keep in a straight line i right. found myself heading off at about 30 degrees trying to get this thing back in control and all i could think to myself is my instructor is just going to have a huge go at me because i must have put so much power on here i must have over boosted the engine because we're really going so fast we take the aeroplane off at plus six boost. I looked at the boost gauge and it was a plus one and a half. Oh, wow. And I, was there, I was there again. Oh, okay. So I used a, a quarter. Yeah. And, um, so, yeah, and you, you advance that and it's um, it's just how the guys got in that and um, experienced that for the first time by themselves. Yeah. It's just phenomenal because the, the step up is just massive. It is. Um, and the Harvard, the Harvard's not an easy um, aeroplane to get to grips with but the Spitfire I mean um, I had uh, due to my hours I had to do 10 hours before I could solo that was the um, right. insurance requirement and by 10 hours I was yeah in a good place to, to go solo but you kind of think had on hour one I yeah. they'd just been going off, off you, you go, go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm not sure uh, Jerry yeah. would have any toys to play with at that yeah. point well that's um, that's what happened back then wasn't it a lot yeah. of them were lost in accidents yeah. on the first couple of goes yeah. I, I believe we're talking back to what we mentioned a moment ago with the brakes it's quite easy to tip it over with the brakes is that yeah, it is, still yeah. something that's at the back of your minds when you see it coming down and in you can't if you want to stop it quickly you you can't really it, you know it, you have to make that decision of how hard do I squeeze this brake lever before I go off the end of the runway sort of thing yeah. um, it's very easy to make it make it nod over yeah and there's so much weight at the front that right. once it starts to go yeah a ton of engine nothing you'll do to stop it yeah, and there'll be bits of matchsticks everywhere so when you actually strap the aeroplane onto him and you're, you're rocketing across the airspace what do you hear inside how does it sound can you hear that iconic Merlin or is it more of kind of a, what's in the headset's vibration usually the sound of me screaming probably. <laughs> um, I was about to say that actually <laughs> um, no, the it's a very weird one with the engine because yeah. um, it is that iconic sound, mm. um, but you only get it from the outside. Um, right inside, it is um, it's just incredibly loud. You know, you know something seriously powerful is, is mm. ahead of you there, but you don't you don't get the same. Uh, I think primarily the sound is as a result of the exhaust system and how, how it moves around, and you don't get that same kind of feel. But you just the sound you do get in front of you is very very impressive whatever it is but it's it doesn't quite have the same crackle there but it's i mean we did the engine and um, so every time we bring the um the aircraft out and have a new engine fitted we, mm. we go for about uh, 20 hours of engine running in we run it about 75 percent something mm. like that um, i was lucky enough to do a couple of those flights and at 75 percent i mean we we were um, helmets fitted with um, noise reduction mm. kit. Uh, it's got excellent radios in it these days and everything like that. And at seventy five percent power, I hadn't got a clue what air traffic was saying. No idea. Really? Wow. I took my best guess because I couldn't hear anything. I had a, um, yeah. It was. It's. It's just a, an amazing sound. So I wouldn't say you get the yeah the iconic sound from there, but the sound you do get is fantastic overwhelming yeah almost. you certainly know you've got a huge bit of machinery in front of you which is yeah, <laughs> epic yeah. that's hefty responsibility gents isn't it <laughs> you know you've got this icon that you've been entrusted with and the, the slightest false move as you're learning to fly it could could cause irreparable damage thank, well, you, thank you for phrasing it like that's that, all yeah. right my friends i'll just point out the reality <laughs> of the situation <laughs> I mean, we're lucky with with the likes of uh, of, of Steve and the other air owners of these aircraft that they let people like me work on them and, mm. and people like Tim fly them. Because if it wasn't for them investing their money into them, none of them would ever fly anyway. Yeah, that's fair, isn't and, it? And know, it is maintaining a bit of national. Uh, and that heritage. that's in the back of your mind as well when mm. you you know when you're looking after these aeroplanes and certainly when I'm sure certainly when you're flying them, you're hand, you're being handed the keys to some of these priceless, you yeah. know, probably very rare collectible aeroplane. Yeah, you that's a lot it, of you, trust. It's a lot of trust. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that. I think the um, flying a Spitfire is by far the best experience of my life, but you only really get to enjoy it once you're on the ground, the engine mm. shut down, really? and then you can go, <laughs> I just did that. Because at, at the point, yeah, you're just, it's it's just, 
I mean, it's a very easy aeroplane to fly, actually. Is it? Um, it's a very difficult aeroplane to land and take off, but um, in the air it's great, but you, it's just all the scan mm. ahead of it and then thinking, actually, mm. if something happens here, where am I going, what am I doing, who am I going to speak to? Mm-hmm. And it's just, yeah, keeping all of that going. So and you do, um, yeah, you do, do feel quite the responsibility, oh, I certainly do anyway, mm. the responsibility that you are flying, and, you know, not just an individual's treasure. I mean, it mm. is... Spitfire means a huge amount to a lot of people, yeah. and um, you are the guy who's privileged enough to be up there. So you you owe it to everyone to yeah. to do a good job. Um, the flip side of that is also is wherever you go, wherever you land, someone will be pointing a camera at you. Oh, no matter what. <laughs> of course, yeah, I even thought of that um, angle to it. Yeah. And uh, so if you have uh, a bumpy <laughs> landing or anything like that, which is we're all capable of. Everybody's yep. a um, critic. Yeah, yeah, everybody's got. You will find. I mean. Um, where we operate at the moment, you can mm-hmm. literally, if you've done something like that, you can look 45 minutes later on social media and go, yeah, there I am. Oh, really? So, uh, so yeah. you have to mute quite a lot of accounts. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> just ignore. Um, but it's... Uh, yeah, if you're on holiday, if I'm on holiday anyway, I just need to look on social media. I can know yeah. exactly what the airplane's doing because it's... So you can uh, keep you, an eye on your kit. Yeah, yeah. You, you can see who's flying it and uh, <laughs> it's all updated on there as it happens, really. And can you use a sort of seasoned vet this now? Can you judge who's flying it even if you didn't know who was on the slate that day? Can you detect those nuances from the ground maybe the Not way they approach so much these oh. days um some they, they all they all fly the airplane differently today um some are a little bit rougher than others but you know all in a, all in a safe kind of way but, yeah um you detect a bit more oil on the cowling after certain people <laughs> is that what we're saying yeah you just see a little bit more movement <laughs> on the undercarriage with the ground a bit harder <laughs> <laughs> But no, you, you tend to. I tend to not be able to uh, most of the time see. You know, not from how they how so they land and stuff. There like isn't that, a signature then. It's not that kind of. No, thing. the boss has got a great signature. He likes flames when he starts it up. <laughs> you can always tell when he's flying. <laughs> um, and what does that do for you? you like scorch something that you have to then clean it off. It just makes me laugh normally because if he hasn't learned by now, he never will. But <laughs> <laughs> most people can manage it. I think he does it for effect. It does, it, it does look cool. It does look very yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah. I did get that question down at Lee actually of a, a chap who was over the fence just before I oh, started yeah. go, so, so what do you have to do to uh, get the flames coming out get the iconic shot and I just said prime it incorrectly <laughs> <laughs> yeah, get it wrong <laughs> but it does look cool yeah, yeah it does look but, cool yeah. it doesn't do it any harm it's just it's, a, it's just a, a tiny little bit too much fuel when you're trying to start it when it's hot because it's got such a short little exhaust it just fires the flame straight out it goes out itself eventually right got you and everybody gets their sort of money shot camera moments and they all love it so. yeah there was something I read about the, the, the engine exhaust whilst we are t- touching upon that area recently with the, the problems that they had in the past night flying Spitfires because of the forward vis thing and because mm. there's so much glow and heat it was very difficult for eyes to sort of night adapt with all that ambient light coming from the engine. Do you ever use yours at night? Is that something you would dream of ever doing? No, I don't think we'd ever. I think <laughs> too much risk. Too much risk. They're yeah. not approved for night flying anymore anyway. Really? Okay. Um, so we can't we can't do that. But yeah. I can't imagine how how they would have seen where they were going. I think they tried various different exhaust setups on them over the years, different shapes, collectors. Right. But I still think that they they still struggled a lot with them. There's so much glow comes out of them. Um, there's some good videos of us it's, doing ground runs in the dark, isn't there? At night? Oh, really? Yeah, and it's, yeah. it's a fascinating flame, actually, because it's blue. Um, mm. So you don't... Um, it's there, of course, all the time. We can't see it unless it, it is night. And when you actually see these blue flames licking, um, you know, taxing really back the cool. twilight, it's, it looks amazing. Yeah, but... Um, but, yeah, having that in front of you probably a little bit <laughs> very distracting yeah. especially when the only way you, you can see the runway normally is looking down the side and all you can see is flames of course so, yeah yeah. Um, it's not not something that they, I know they used to do it regularly but God, no more God knows how they're too precious now aren't they yeah, oh, yeah absolutely yeah and it's illegal <laughs> <laughs> yeah unless your iPod maybe shut down and you have absolutely to. yeah mm. these well, things yeah. happen <laughs> if you ever wanted to love those night hours <laughs> Spitfire night hours Tim there's an idea <laughs> So, gents, there's a question I want to ask you about the longest flight. And for the podcast listeners who didn't catch the first episode, that's where your team are going to take an antique Spitfire around the world. And it's co-sponsored by IWC. You've got this vintage piece of design iconography that's going to be going around the world. And what I want to ask is about the challenges on the route, specifically, Jerry, to you, mate, asking about, like, when you go to some of these austere airfields in other nations, how difficult is it going to be? What are the challenges going to be to get spares if you need them or how do you carry that kind of stuff with you how do you work out the maintenance schedule on a route like that uh 
with great difficulty and a lot of planning. <laughs> Can I answer when we come back? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you can't plan for every eventuality. Um, I've been working for the last sort of few months now on, on spares lists and just using the previous experience that we've all got of operating these aeroplanes of what breaks, what doesn't, right. what environments things tend to, to, to fail and just putting it together from there. We're a little bit constrained in what we can carry weight-wise in the yeah. support aircraft because yeah, yeah, yeah. obviously we've got ourselves to carry baggage, aircraft mm-hmm. spares, oils, fuels. Yeah. Um, we can't take everything. So it's uh, it's going to be one of those pick, pick your battles kind of thing and right. take, take not, not necessarily the bare minimum, but take the stuff that we know we're going to need and mm. have the rest of it on a shelf somewhere ready to be dispatched, you know, ASAP. Okay. So you want it the, anything that you haven't got with you to be needed somewhere really nice so you get to overnight for a few extra days somewhere yeah. good. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a plan. Good, I like it. <laughs> and then when you're prioritising the bits that you're carrying, you, you've got like, a, I don't know, some kind of data sheet that you've cr- produced, which bits break most often? And It's just, yeah, it's just literally a list based on experience of um, en- bits, engine bits, yep. you know, seals, components. Right, okay, um, so almost expendable bits. That yeah, just it's out. more the consumable stuff. Yep. Uh, obviously the general servicing stuff, because we're going to need to do scheduled maintenance while we're, uh, okay. While we're going around as well, so we have to take oil filters and gaskets. Right. Um, How long do they take to do? Depending on which which check we're doing, one of them will take a day, one of them will take two days for a couple of people. So, oh wow! Um, we've got about seven of them to do around around um, the route. So I'm guessing the tools that you have to use on an old aircraft like that are, are fairly unique. So it's not like you're going to be flying without your toolkit either, is it? You've got no, to no, I have to take a toolkit as well. I know, you know, the toolkit has to have the eventuality yeah. sort of bits in there as well. Yeah. And if all else fails, we're taking a lot of tape and, and, and plasters and we'll try <laughs> stick it all back together best yeah. we can. Maybe a big hammer. I like my hammers as well. They, they work quite well. <laughs> yeah, if in doubt. <laughs> yeah. And what about you, Tim? When the guys are going down on the route, what, what kind of problems do you reckon they'll encounter with things like fuels that they have to get from foreign places? I'm, I think it's going to be an amazing adventure, I think, is the <laughs> way. Um, uh, it's effectively done something that hasn't been done before with these, this, this type of, to my knowledge anyway, this type of aircraft yeah. on this kind of scale. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it, 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 it's, I mean, I've been uh, very, very fortunate enough to do some flying with uh, Steve and Matt. Matt was very yep. much um, one of my instructors in the early days and it's, um, it's fascinating seeing the whole process and the, yeah, it's the eventualities. I mean, flying such an aeroplane is, is as we, we, we touched on earlier, amazing, but it's, it's going to be all the contingencies it's going yes. to be where am i where am i going to go if this happens what mm-hmm. am i going to do how angry is jerry going to get <laughs> and, it's, um, and like you're touching on the things like um fuels and yeah. oils and uh, coolants and because it has a variety of different things that you can't just you know go down your tesco's and pick up so it's going to no. be quite um quite interesting how that's all managed and it's also i think from a um, my point of view i'm, I'm fascinated they're going to operate it over a range of temperatures. Uh, um, yeah, of course. So um, it's going to be yeah. yeah some of the routes they're going to it's going to have that huge kind of elements, different humidities, yep. different. So it's kind of going to be adapting the performance of the airplanes they go along, and I imagine from a flying perspective they're going to have to start kind of re relearn relearning certain elements yeah. depending mm. on where they are. And, so yeah. a lot a lot of the flying that we do day to day really is no never normally longer than about an hour. Yeah. And you know you we'll either go from A to A or mm. A to B, which is B is never that far away. Right. And everything's quite consistent. Yeah. Whereas you know we're going to be going through temperature extremes. We've got across the Iceland green, uh, sorry, the Greenland ice caps. Mm. Mm. Um, we're going to be in the Middle East. Yeah. Um, we're going to be in humidity in sort of in, in India. Yeah. There's all sorts of stuff that those are unknown unknown variables for us as to how the airplane is going to behave they, yeah. they don't like getting hot they right. don't like sitting around for very long in, in hot in high temperatures otherwise they they overheat mm-hmm. so there's going to be like you say there's going to be some some learning of of how the airplane behaves itself in these different environments and adapting to that really yeah and the, the fact that you're based at goodwood and the people who are lucky enough to live near it must probably get used to you guys doing your thing every day and almost recognize the airplane when you're talking about the, the bits in between the maintenance stuff when you're transiting this silver spitfire across the globe there's some countries you're going to that have never seen a spitfire before is that right absolutely yeah so do you, are you expecting referencing kind of the the kind of spotter angle on it are you expecting lots of upturned faces do you think people will wonder what the noise is or do you reckon the noise of a spitfire is recognizable 
certainly for us it's not recognizable you know mm. i i can i can sit sit or stand in the house and i, I can say oh, what's that really oh hang on a minute i know what that is and we'll all go outside and we're like well, where is it we can't oh, i can't yeah. see it yeah and we, we we're all so attuned to it you can you'll hear it anywhere um and most people when they hear it because it does sound different to yeah any other airplane, regardless of whether they know it's a Spitfire or not, it mm-hmm. does make you look up and think, what's that? Yeah. And then I guess it's only then when you look and you see that sort of shape, when you see it from from underneath, you recognise what it is. Yeah, that'll be but a real head-turner. Some of the places that it's never been before, we're also taking it back to countries uh, like Burma, that, mm. it, that it hasn't been in since since the end of, end of the 40s. So. Oh, wow. So there'll be like old people there maybe who have distant memories of yeah. hearing that noise. Yeah. That'd be it, awesome. You know, but, and the fact that it's such a shiny sort of beautiful mm. raw aeroplane mm. that hides nothing but its sort of beautiful engineered form it's yep. um it'll attract a lot of attention oh no doubt so are you going to be doing social streams in line with the flight then people are going to go what's that noise look online oh wow it was a spitfire yeah there's i think there's a whole um sort of social media um, bit set up around it and the website will be updated daily and oh, excellent people will be able to see where we are and hopefully track us yeah, oh, I bet you'll have a load of followers at the back end of that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It'll be a mini celebrity, won't you, Jamie? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> well, thanks very much, gents. It's been a pleasure chatting to you today, and both from the airside team and from the ground side, Jerry. Thank you. No, thank you very much. No, thank you. It's been brilliant. Cheers, lads. Thank you for taking the time to listen to today's podcast. These guys are incredibly fortunate to be working with these vintage planes every day. They'll both be working on the Silver Spitfire during its round-the-world flight. Be sure to track their progress live online at silverspitfire.com. Next week, I'll be looking at the design cues of the Spitfire and what inspirations led to the creation of this iconic plane. I hope you'll join me again for that, and until then, goodbye.